0: Go to shopify.com/sonoro to take your business to the next level today. shopify.com/sonoro
1: Business Perfect Formula is available wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: This is a story of pioneers, a story of adventurers, a story of those who say, my circumstances of my birth shall not limit my dreams. Some of the words that he said to me that I could still
3: remember was like, I really want to be a lawyer, and when I become a lawyer, I will help fight against our corrupt leaders that are... cousin, some of us to burn away from poverty and stuff. I had to fend for myself. I had nowhere to go. Throughout the journey, I can't recall a day that I slept in a house, like a house where there's a roof on top.
4: Welcome to the Global Cast, the podcast that explores how to change the
5: world In this episode, we will introduce you to an extraordinary young man. He's a migrant from Sierra Leone, and so much more.
4: Fata, you and I talk to our kids about how to have grit and resilience. I think Ibrahim defines those words. And he's not only brave, he's studious, and he's a poet. He wrote this about the trek he made across the Sahara and the Mediterranean.
3: A true hero is what we are. We may not be recognized,
5: but that's just what we are. A true hero. When you hear his story, you will understand why we say that. And you will experience migration from the migrants' point of view, right after this. This episode of Global Goalscast is brought to you by MasterCard. MasterCard is dedicated to building an inclusive world
0: in which the digital economy works for everyone everywhere. The World Food Programme had a vision that they called a digital food. In other words, actually giving refugees the money and the wherewithal to buy food for themselves instead of parachuting in bags of rice. Later in this episode,
5: you will hear about how MasterCard's technology helped the World Food Programme feed refugees. And also we want to thank CBS News Digital and Herman. The official sound of the Global Goals Cast. Welcome back. I'm Claudia Romo
4: Edelman. And I'm Edie Lash. We have spoken here, Claudia, on the Global Goals Cast about migration and the central role it plays in the global economy and in achieving the global goals. There are 260 million migrants in the world. And you
5: and me are two of them. 260 million and, and two. Two. <laughs> And there are likely to be many, many more migrants in the years ahead. So we need to understand who the migrants are and why do they make their journeys. We need to understand the four steps of migration and the four milestones from
4: the moment of departure, the journey, the arrival and the return. And sadly, we don't hear the migrants' stories very often. What we hear about migration is controversy and tragedy.
2: We've had 30,000 Africans drown in the four, five years in the Mediterranean.
4: This is Mohammed Yahya from the United Nations Development Program. I asked him about the horrifying death of those 39 Vietnamese people in a refrigerated truck in the United Kingdom last week.
2: The, the death of the 39 truck is a huge tragedy and, and a sickening one. And I suppose confirms our data in terms of risk. And I think more people will unfortunately take this risk. This is why a different... A system needs to be thought through because these are people who are chasing a different dream coming all the way from Asia. And this current system, unfortunately, just empowers human traffickers in many ways.
4: Later in this episode, Mohammed Yahya will be back to tell us about the United Nations Development Program report on what they call irregular migration from Africa to Europe. And how important it is for all of us to understand what drives the migrants to take such risks. Claudia, here we go with the Global Goals Cast lexicon. Are you ready? Damelo, mami! Irregular migration. It's kind of fuzzy. It means without documents or legal permission to enter the countries they're trying to reach. Irregular in this story led to exploitation, modern slavery, and extraordinary risks, all to pursue an aspiration.
5: We are all part of this story. We can look away if we choose. And allow choices to be made on fear and misinformation. Or the alternative that we want you to take is to learn about the facts, to learn about migration and understand migrants, whether they cross the Mediterranean or the Rio Grande or if they follow some new Silk Road from Asia. These people are people, people, human beings with families and aspirations,
4: just like us. Just like us. I was surprised reading the UN report about who these migrants are and why they leave home.
3: We once had a home to call our own, with friends and loved ones now a thousand miles away. We sobbed and cried as we tell goodbye, for those precious moments can hardly come by. Living a beautiful life was our hope, so we dreamt of moving to Europe, with a possibility as thin as a rope. We
5: want you to get to know one of these migrants the way we have gotten to know him here. His name? Ibrahim Conde.
3: We are like a ship without a manger, knowing that every seconds of our lives was in danger. Forced to work without pay, and if you dare, the pull the trigger.
4: He's from Sierra Leone, and he is just the kind of irregular migrant that the UNDP wants us to understand.
3: We made up our minds and say no turning back. In plastic boats, we were choked up as much as they can, just like fishes in a sardine can. respect of our religions, we prayed for God's mercy. For it was only by His grace that we made it through that great sea. A true hero is what we are. We may not be recognized, but that's just what we are.
5: The Global Goldscast team spent hours talking with Ibrahim,
3: This is my first
5: year. Edie was first introduced to him by our partners at UNICEF. She called him to talk about his use of an innovative text message service that helps migrants. But then, when she heard his whole story, we wanted more. So our executive editor, Mike Oreskes, called him back and spoke for another two hours.
4: Okay, great. I'm so glad we were able to... We took a lot of his time. Probably what he should have been studying. Yes, and even if the quality of the audio
5: is not perfect, we think it's compelling enough for you to hear it.
4: We have put the story together so that you can experience Ibrahim's voyage as we did from the beginning at home in Sierra Leone
3: I was living like far away from my parents because at a very young age, my mom and dad sent me to the nation's capital Freetown to Go to school because in the village where they were living in the provinces there was no possibility for me to go to school there because there was no structure actually so i was living with my aunt in freetown i had the opportunity to see them only during holidays i was happy going to school like like school was actually something that I, I was supposed to do, even if I don't want to, because it was like a priority. It's something that was made known to me, even at a tender age, because my parents never had the opportunity to go to school. So when I was younger, they tried all their best to send me to school so I could go to school, get good grades, and then eventually be able to redeem them from poverty.
4: In 2013, Ibrahim's father died, leaving his mother with Ibrahim and two younger brothers. But as mother persevered, she kept working and she kept him in school.
3: And so everything was okay. Everything was going normal.
4: Normal, that is, until a trip home from school to visit his mom in their village in 2016.
3: In March, I went on a holiday.
4: Which is when Ibrahim's aspiration... Fueled by urban life in Freetown, collided with tribal custom from his village.
3: We do have certain things in Sierra Leone that happens during the March, the dry season, which is mostly about cultural stuff, secret societies. And because I didn't grow up in my village, so I knew nothing about how things are done there. I didn't know the rules it was a time for initiation where they had to catch boys and take them to for initiation because they do believe that initiating boys at a very young age is how they could prepare them to be good leaders. Anyone who is not a member of them is actually seen as a coward. So a lot of boys, it's a dream for the day they will be initiated.
5: What Ibrahim is describing are the tribal secret societies that play an important role in West Africa. And those are initiating boys and girls into adulthood.
3: I was not into the the culture of the particular community where I was born. And if my dad was alive, he would have forced me. But my mom, who was there with me, she never wanted me to be part of it. And most importantly, I don't like the fact that after the initiation I have to be leaving with scars all over my body, because I've seen so many boys who have been part of the society. They have scars, like everlasting scars, that will be with them until they die.
4: I've heard a great deal about the female version of these initiations, because for girls this traditionally involves removing the clitoris. I hadn't heard as much about the male version, which does not include genital mutilation, but rather knife slashes that resemble claws or teeth across the back. Ibrahim wanted no part of this.
3: So on that day, I was out with my mom, like at the veranda of our house. And my mom has a little table where she sells food stuff like biscuit, sweet. And so I was helping her packing those materials into a box. And then a group of men came around the town. So a lot of people ran into their houses. And I was out. I didn't know that I was supposed to run because I'm not one of them. Because actually, if you are not a member of a particular group that comes out on a specific day, you are not supposed to see them or neither be out whilst they are in parade. And so I was taken with them, together with seven other boys from the village, whom they caught as well. We worked about two to three hours getting to initiation place, and I was told that I was caught not only because I was outside and I I saw them when they came, but because I had to like represent my father to take the place of my father because he was once a member, and it is obligatory that every first child of a family must take up the responsibility of the dad when he's late. I wasn't aware of that. I denied at first, but I, I had no power because they were huge guys. And so the initiation place was actually in a bush where it was divided into two places. Like the first side was for the new initiates and the second place was for the members of the society. Where during the day we would just stand outside so under a big tree while they go on with some of their process, initiation process. I was there for about a week together with different boys and so every day they would go out into different towns in search of new boys or food so they might leave us with one or two people to gather us. That was when I ran away and I walked through the bush during the night because it was night until in the morning hours, like seven. I happened to like be in a highway, so I met with some guys who, who were loading some goods into a truck, and I asked whether I could help if they would take me to Guinea. The guy was like, "Okay, no problem." So I helped, and after we finished packing, we went to Guinea, onto Conakry. I didn't want to return home because I was scared of being caught again. I. Didn't know anyone that lives in Guinea. I had to, like, fend for myself. The very first night, I slept on a stall at the lorry Park. And so, in the morning, I would go outside, like, ask people if I could do little domestic work for them and get something, money or food, just to sustain myself. So that continues for several days until I had one lady who employed me, actually, because she sells mineral water. I saved that money for about three months, and I moved to Mali, mainly because of the currency rate. I was still thinking of mom, like how I could get something and send from my mom. So I wanted to go to a place that has a currency that is a bit higher.
5: After seven months in Guinea, he moved to Mali, And there, he spotted some familiar faces.
3: One day, I met with a group of boys who were actually from from Syria, whom I knew before.
4: Among these 10 boys was a friend from childhood named Daniel.
3: I was happy because when I left home, he was the only person that I came across who knows me, actually. When he told me about what his journey was, I said, "Okay, you're my friend. I know you, so I trusted him that much. I said, Well, we could start everything together. They told me that they are moving towards North Africa, Algeria in particular, for work because they were told that in Algeria there are a lot of job opportunities where people work in construction sites and they get paid a lot of money.
4: Ibrahim and Daniel made a pact to travel together. Ibrahim's no longer just a teenager running away from his village culture. He and Daniel and the other boys join a great migration north.
3: I agreed to move with him. And so we left Mali. We had to pay with all the money that I earned from the work that I was doing. I paid for Mali to be taken to Algeria. So it was a full bus, very full bus. We sat in in a group like, People from Sierra Leone, we all just went to the backseat. We were there talking to each other.
5: Hour after hour, he and Daniel talked.
3: Our discussions are mostly of home, like how we left home, what our intentions when we might have money, what we want to do back in our country. He always has that dream, like he wanted to be a lawyer. Some of the words that he said to me that I could still remember was like, I really want to be a lawyer. And when I become a lawyer, I'll help fight against our corrupt leaders that are causing us, some of us to burn away from poverty and stuff. And so you can see like the passion in his eyes.
4: Rolling east across the Sahel, neither Daniel nor Ibrahim could have possibly known all the trials that lay ahead but they would soon learn that they had entered a very precarious world, vulnerable at every turn.
5: We will rejoin their journey in a moment, but first, a break, so that Anne Cairns, from our sponsor MasterCard, can tell us all about technology that helped the World Food Program feed refugees.
0: We actually began in 2012 working with them on helping refugees as they moved from Syria into Jordan and the Lebanon and further afield get access to food. And the World Food Programme had a vision that they called a digital food. In other words, actually giving refugees the money and the wherewithal to buy food for themselves instead of parachuting in bags of rice, basically, because the lands that they were moving into were very fertile. And the first thing that we did was roll out cards so that these refugees could actually shop in local shops. And not only were they able to buy fresh food for themselves and their families, but also the self-esteem of basically choosing the food that you wanted to buy was huge. And of course it had a positive impact on the local farmers. Now one of the things that we found out was particularly for example in the refugee camps we could track exactly what was bought, sometimes it was medicine by the way and we could tell if the medicine was running out and actually get people to order more but also we found that the highest amount of food that was bought was actually powdered milk because there were so many babies in those camps. And when we looked at that data and shared it with the World Food Programme, they actually could go and negotiate a discount from the providers of powder milk because they're buying for millions of people rather than just each individual. So this is a great example of how you can use data for good and how you can use technology to actually be able to predict what food you need or what medication you need.
4: Thank you to Anne Cairn from MasterCard. Ibrahim and Daniel had
5: joined a stream of migrants. The migrants were flowing toward North Africa, but in the eye of the corrupt and the criminal, that human stream looks like a revenue stream. Those migrants are easy to exploit. Their status makes it hard for them to turn to police or other authority for protection. In Niger, Ibrahim and Daniel were told they were changing buses. The next bus would be right along, but it wasn't. They were left standing in a parking lot with many others.
3: We were dumped in Niger, a huge number of us. Those that can afford it at that particular time had to pay again to move.
5: For two weeks, Ibrahim and Daniel helped load and unload trucks in that parking lot. But finally, they got a ride as part of their payment.
3: So there are many cars there because it's a like a bus stop. Cars coming from different parts of Niger and some other countries. So we started to work with one of these big trucks. They used to move with goods from the capital city of Niger to the border in Algeria. So we sometimes packed loads for them. So we did it for two weeks or three weeks. And so the man actually said, Okay The next trip that we we took to the brother, he just left us there as part of our payment.
4: They've made it to Algeria. Ibrahim and Daniel scratch out a routine, squatting with other migrants in a partially finished building without a roof. Three to four months, spending his days with Daniel. Sometimes locked in, other days allowed out to work.
3: So in Algeria we went to a, a camp like where many migrants were, many people from different parts in Western Africa were. So they just stay there in the morning, go out in search of jobs where there's like construction sites, then work throughout the day and in the evening. There's a, a little store where they sell food stuff. So every evening back from work we we'll grab some food stuff like rice, vegetables, and then come back to unfinished building and try to cook but actually waiting to cook it's always like in line because there are a couple of other people that wanted to cook as well so we might end up cooking around 11 10 at night and then after food we draw our cardboard to sleep because there's nothing like bed it's it's like an open space
5: Ibrahim and Daniel met some traffickers in the camp, and after a few months, they decided to go with them east to Libya. But again, things didn't go according to the plan.
3: We paid the traffickers about 300 or 400 U.S. dollars to take us to Tripoli, which is the capital and where the pot is, where people used to, like, move. But he didn't Night like go as we planned. They told us it will take us two days to reach in Tripoli. But we actually spent one week in the desert before we, we were able to see normal land or buildings. It takes so long because, one, the distance, and two, we had a breakdown. And uh, one thing about, about the desert, there's no specific route to go, so people use different routes, and you, some of them just follow the traces of other cars that have passed by. And most times, uh, there are security personnel or soldiers or other gangs that do chase these people in the desert, and always they are always armed. And so we reached to a certain point that we had to wait, where they knew that it might be a potential place where they could get in contact with these different gangs. Another thing that is unreported actually, people only knew about the amount of people that dies in the sea. But actually, there are a huge number of people that dies in the desert. Going through the desert, you, you could see like fossils, like remains of people that have just been dumped, left to dry out in the sand. People that die out of dehydration, people that just die out in the cars and there was no way to wait. They would just take them and throw them out. And sometimes you just think about, yeah, maybe the next minute it's me. You have no hope of seeing the next day. You just say, okay, I'm alive for this minute. Maybe the next minute I'll be dead.
4: Before reaching their promised destination of Tripoli, the journey comes to an unexpected halt. They've arrived in Saba, a notorious hive of human trafficking. It's hard from our modern vantage point to believe a place this lawless still exists on earth. Ibrahim and Daniel asked the trafficker why they weren't going on to Tripoli.
3: He just told us that that is where his journey has ended, that we need to pay again in order to continue. And so we were then given mobile phones to call our parents back home to request for money before we could be free and so people who have the chance to call their parents for money will then be transferred to Tripoli or to wherever there is the sea and so I couldn't call my mom by then because she knew that I went to Mali but when I left Mali she didn't know So I didn't call her because she couldn't afford to give me that money at that time, and the the stress, so I didn't call her. So people who can't pay will stay there, and then there are different building construction sites or works that happens in the farm. So if Libyans that live in that area, if they want like assistance, or they want a laborer, they will come to this site and then ask The leader of the camp and then the leader will give out people to go and work in that particular place. I couldn't exit the gate without the permission and I will only go out in a car, in their car, that is when we are going out for work. And when we get paid the money will never be in our hands, it will be paid directly to the leader of the camp. We will never have that money.
5: They had gone from being migrants to being captives, modern slaves.
3: So it's like you have to work in order to pay for, like, ransom, actually. So I was there for a couple of months, like, working daily.
4: The business model of the traffickers is to move people along after they've worked for a while.
3: Every Friday, 26 people are supposed to leave. And so one evening, while he was counting, there were only 25. And so he just saw me because I was one of the youngest little boys among our group. And so he just said, well, come, go with them. So that was when I had to leave that place. That was the, the only opportunity I had to leave on that fateful evening together with other people. And then we went to Zabrata, which is the, like the seaside.
5: Nine months after running away from his village on that day in March, Ibrahim and his friend Daniel reached the southern shore of the Mediterranean.
3: Throughout the journey, I can't recall a day that I slept in a house where there's a roof on top. I can't recall. And so at the seaside, it was very cool, like very cool. It was in December very cold and we had to be outside Like we get food a loaf of bread once a day and so I was there for like two weeks because we had to wait for the construction of the, the dinghies and also the weather condition and so when the, the time came one evening around 12 to 12 30 a.m. on the twelfth of December to still remember they called us, we were about 130, that's 140 folks that we loaded that, on that boat that, uh, that morning.
4: And in the gloom of that cold night, Ibrahim in the prow of the overcrowded boat and Daniel crammed in further back, set off across the Mediterranean Sea. Both tragedy and success lay ahead.
5: And we will tell you the rest of Ibrahim's story in the next episode of the Global Goalscast. But now we want to pause to look more deeply at how Ibrahim's voyage illustrates so many similar journeys.
2: This is a story of pioneers, a story of adventurers, a story of those who say that my circumstances of my birth shall not limit my dreams that I have for myself and if I don't meet it at home, I'm happy to cross any barrier to achieve it. So it was really important for us to tell those stories and voices in a balanced, but in a way that most people can access. We wanted that because we wanted to inform policymakers that these unknown faces that we hear drown in the seas or exploited or enslaved in some parts in some North African countries. Uh, we wanted to put faces and we wanted their voices be at the center of, of future debates.
4: That's Mohammed Yahya of the UN Development Program, explaining why his report included a series of video interviews with individual migrants. They're actually incredible films. I encourage you to go look at them on the internet. As well as the findings from nearly 2,000 interviews with African migrants who had reached Europe. And one very important finding was that many
5: of those migrants had a job at home or, like Ibrahim, were in school.
2: That does not mean that African young people are not looking for jobs, or neither does it mean that employment is not an important factor. What it means is that the quality of employment matters and that people's aspiration and the power of their dreams are much bigger than only economic factors. And then related to the risk itself, what was very interesting is if you go to many African capitals, you see a lot of discourse around whether if they only knew about the risk, maybe they will not have taken this journey, this dangerous journey. But what we found was that although 93% of those who migrated experienced extreme distress and and found the journey itself to be extremely dangerous, but only 2% say, knowing what we know now, I will not have done it. So majority of them will still have come. This paints a different picture of what we hear normally. One thing we know is that the status quo does not work for young Africans or Africa in general. Africa is losing those it has invested in. But also, it doesn't work for many Europeans who find irregular migration itself something that concerns them and a sense of losing control over their borders. So how do we move the discourse of migration to new level with the evidence we've provided? and that is essentially uh, what, what the report aims to do.
4: For me, the most amazing point there was that only two percent wouldn't have done that same journey knowing how dangerous it was. That to me is extraordinary. By 2030, Africa will
5: have 1 billion young people and Africa is not equipped to receive that amount of youth. They don't have enough schools, they don't have enough jobs. First cities, second cities, third cities are growing at a pace that is like incredible. And while economies are growing in Africa, so is inequality. And so you will expect more people to take the risk that 2%, you know, like only 2% would not do it, to do more because their dreams are not confined. Their infrastructures are. So as a society, we have to really embrace the migration debate and try to see how those frameworks are really going to be not only good to have, but essential to continue understanding what will be a natural trajectory of the population.
4: One of the recommendations of the report was to work more on these legal pathways. In fact, to encourage, when possible, circular migration, so that you can come, if you want to, to Europe to work. And then if you want to, you can come back home.
2: What resonates in the report is that this sense that young people do not feel that their countries offer them ladders of opportunity, a sense that there's a ceiling or a a fence Essentially there are cultural fences, political fences and and economic fences. And on the cultural side is this deep sense that being young is seen as a huge disadvantage in many of uh, African cultures. So if you're young, you're ambitious, you are creative, most parts of the world that would be an advantage, but in many parts of the African continent there is fences and barriers for young people. So that is what the story of the scaling fences is also, in a sense that those who, not only are they scaling legal fences in terms of coming to Europe and, and finding barriers to their dreams, but they actually come from, or have already scaled several fences back home, and culture it seems to be one of them as well.
5: Edi, I remember when we were, I think that it was like our... Second or third episode ever sounds like an eternity back then of season one when I was still working for the office of the Secretary General of working on the Global Compact for Migration when we did this episode on migration mm. saying, one, migration is ancient unstoppable and positive, and second, that we need to get more on the understanding of the human story, of what would be the circumstances for you to take such a desperate move as leaving everything that you know, knowing that it's going to be horrible, and nevertheless do it. And so there's a déjà vu moment that I'm having here on listening to this and saying like, we still have to do more to make people feel that they have the pros and the cons of migration so that they can make up their minds and understand a phenomenon that is so important for our future as opposed to just dealing with the fear. <music> Ibrahim's story fits the UND report in another way.
2: You're not getting least educated, low-skilled people. What you're getting is aspirational, dynamic people who want to improve their lives and that more will be coming. The trend is not one that over a long run that reduces. So it's timely to start looking at legal pathways. By legal pathways we refer to issue of labor migration. What we see in the report is there is a need in some parts of the European continent for the labor that these young people provide. How can we put in place something that is manageable because of the irregular nature of the migration itself it creates anti-migration feelings in europe because no ordinary person will want to sense that they have lost control of who comes into their country so once you have a legal pathway we are confident the irregular nature and the anxiety that is related with the ungovernedness of irregular migration may go down. But it will need courage, courage on both sides, and it will need a new debate around migration. And we hope this report provides for Europeans a sense of understanding who's coming and maybe a debate around what kind of migration Europe needs.
5: Understanding data, facts, stories. This is what we want to
4: provide to you so that you understand migration at heart. And before I let Muhammad go, I asked him to provide this episode's facts and actions.
2: Fact one is that most of the African migrants, they're on average more educated than their peers back home, secondary and some university level education. Fact two is that those who are more likely to want to go back after being in Europe are those who are working. This is really an important evidence that making life difficult for them, not allowing them to work in Europe, is creating the opposite incentive of staying rather than going back to their home country. Another fact that will be interesting is, risk of the journey, I mean, is overpowered by the power of dreams, of reimagining your future. So the 2% saying that knowing what they know, they will not have done it, is very, very small and shockingly small, considering the risk that is associated with the journey.
4: And tell me three actions that our listeners, if they care about these issues, could go out and take.
2: One is uh, support the transformation of Africa, not through aid only, but through trade and other aspects. So the relationship between Africa and Europe has to be one of mutual beneficial system, structurally transforming Africa is is one of the things that will then allow young people to want to stay in their own countries at least give them that option second is the legal pathways is a really really important there is no getting out of this politically it may be very difficult now but the entire discussion around creating legal pathways this is what the global compact calls for the open migration, creating processes whereby people can come through labor migration. It doesn't have to be permanent, but it has to be legal. And then the final part is changing the discourse of migration from what it has been to one that is much more sober, that is informed by evidence.
4: Thank you to Mohammed Yahya of the UN Development Program for those facts and actions. And thank you to Ibrahim Conde for sharing his story. And we'll be returning to it in our next episode. And thank you all for listening.
5: Please like and subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. And follow us on social media at Global Ghostcast. See you next time.
4: Give us five stars. Don't forget the stars. We love those. (laughs) See you in safe travels
1: from the desert. (laughs) Adios. Bye-bye. Global Goalscast was hosted by Edie Lush and Claudia Romo-Edelman. We are editorial guru by Mike Oreskes. Editing and sound production by Simon James. Our operations director is Michelle Cooperwriter. And welcome to our new intern, Tina Pastore. Music in this episode was by Neil Hale, Angelica Garcia, Simon James, Katie Krohn, Ashish Pillowal, and Andrew Phillips. This episode is brought to you by MasterCard,
5: creating scalable solutions for sustainable and inclusive economic growth. And thanks also to CBS News Digital and to Herman, the official sound of the Global Goalscast.
1: The struggle is
5: real, and we know that firsthand being daughters of hardworking immigrants. That's why on La Lucha Is Real podcast, hablamos un poquito de todo. Somos Angel and Edith, long-term best friends who have authentic conversations, giving us space to be vulnerable without judgment because La Lucha Is Real.
1: We want all of our amigos who listen to us to feel a part of the conversation and feel empowered to become a better version of themselves. A veces y a veces llorando, pero siempre mejorando.
4: La Lucha Is Real podcast is available wherever you listen to podcasts.